John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. We are in the midst of this study of the Gospel of John, the most reflective book, I believe, in the Bible. One in which we really need, in order to wring out everything that John has for us, we need to reflect on it, we need to ponder it, we need to consider it, we don't need to rush through it. So that's why we've been taking our study of John very, very slow and very deliberate. And we have seen John reveal to us the wonder of the Word of God, the wonder of Jesus Christ, and we stand in all of Him tonight. And we see that John the Baptist knew who he was because he knew who Jesus Christ was. And we see that he was... He was very sure about the role and responsibility that God had given to him. And God wants us to be sure about that in our lives as well. And it's only as we truly know who Jesus is that we can really truly begin to understand ourselves and know who we are and know who he wants us to be. Tonight in the passage we're going to be looking at tonight, not only now does John really continue to uh, come forth and share with us who Jesus is and, and wants us all to, in a sense, wonder at who the Word of God is. But it's really cool now, beginning tonight, we begin to see God Himself through Jesus Christ, God, interacting, beginning to interact with human beings in His ministry on earth and just how He interacts with them, and, and what they say to Him, and what He says to them. I just want you to sort of picture yourself going back there, and being, you know, right there, as, as Jesus begins to interact with the, with the people, and let the words of Scripture literally jump off the page, and become real to you, as if you are right there, in that desert place in the wilderness, with John the Baptist, and Jesus Himself. Where John says in verse 29, on the next day, John saw Jesus. And by the way, this word to see here doesn't just mean to physically see with my eyes. It means to perceive. It means to discern. In other words, this idea of seeing is that John sees obviously below the surface of the individual Jesus himself. And he really begins to understand who Jesus is. And it's because he sees Jesus for who he really is coming towards him. He then says, look, a favorite word of John in his gospel. It means to behold, to see, to take time to stop and consider who this is. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're going to be here for a little bit, folks. The Lamb of of God. Keep your finger there in John and let's do a quick little time through the word. Go back to the book of Genesis 22. Genesis 22. The concept of, of Jesus being the Lamb of God is one of the most profound in all of Scripture. It is found from Genesis through Revelation. And there's so much about the Lamb of God. I want you to see our Jesus tonight 
as your lamb. And I want you to, to maybe more than ever see what that means to you and how Jesus as the lamb of God, how does that apply to you and me in our lives? The first time we encounter the lamb, if you will, in Genesis 22, you're very familiar with the story of Abraham getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I want you to drop down to verse 7 of Genesis 22, where Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, what is it, my son? He replied. Here's the father and the wood, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham replied, and the two of them continued on together, where is the lamb? That's the question in Genesis, and we're going to see later on in the book of Revelation, it goes from where is the lamb to worthy is the lamb. The lamb of God, you see. And God was going to provide for Himself the Lamb. Then over to the book of Exodus. To Exodus chapter 12. The story of the Passover. And go up to verse 21. And as you and I think about the Lamb of God, Many times we think of it just in terms of sacrifice and substitute. And that's certainly implied and what is meant by Jesus being our lamb. He was the one that God provided. He was the one that took our place. He is the one that was sacrificed on our behalf. But I want you to see another concept of the lamb. Because when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's not just referring to the sacrificial Lamb that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53. He's also talking about the Passover Lamb that we see here in Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, what we are reminded of is that the Lamb of God is not just a sacrificial Lamb. He is a symbol of deliverance. Notice in verse 21, Exodus 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and told them, Go and select for yourselves a lamb or a young goat for your families and kill the Passover animals. Take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and apply it to the top of the door frame and to the two side posts, some of the blood that is in the basin. Not one of you is to go out the door of his house until morning for the Lord will pass through to strike Egypt. And when he sees the blood on top of the door frame and the two side posts, then the Lord will pass over the door and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. It was a symbol of deliverance, not only of judgment, but it was also a reminder of when God instituted this, that the very next day they would be released from bondage in Egypt and they would begin their flight on into the promised land and they would be a free people because of the blood of the Lamb of God. So when John the Baptist says, Behold, look at the Lamb of God, it's not just sacrifice. It's not just substitute. It's also deliverance. Jesus Christ came to deliver us. You see. 
and then go on over to Revelation. We could, we could take the whole night just to go through the Lamb of God study. We'll do that some other time. Revelation chapter 5. Oh, and then I thought of another one too. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Revelation 5.11. Or let, yeah, 5.11. I'll start there. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels in a circle around the throne, as well as the living creatures and the elders. Their number was 10,000 times 10,000. Thousands times thousands. All of whom were singing in a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. Notice verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, glory, ruling power forever and ever. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world will one day be worshipped by the world. And isn't it interesting that God chose the Lamb? What we would consider not in the animal kingdom, obviously the one that would be the, the king of beasts. And yet it was going to be through this Lamb that victory would come, you see. In fact, one more. If you go over to Revelation seventeen fourteen. Revelation 17, 14, notice this about the Lamb. The Lamb isn't anything to be messed with. Because He's the Lamb of God. Revelation 17, 14, they will make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those accompanying the Lamb are the called, chosen, and faithful. By the way, folks, that's you and I. We will be there when the Lamb of God conquers all of His enemies. So my goodness, friends, when we come to chapter 1, verse 29 of the Gospel of John, and John the Baptist is there in the wilderness, and he knows that his role and responsibility is to point people to Jesus Christ. When he sees Jesus, he says, Behold. There's the Lamb of God. And then he says, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Again, takes away. He literally takes it unto himself and carries it away. He removes it. And notice that John doesn't say the sins of the world. Notice in your translation, it should be singular, the sin of the world. Meaning, John says, it is the totality of our sin. It's not just, you know, one or two. It is the absolute totality of our sin. And notice, it is not just the sin of the Jews. It is the sin of the world, you see, that he is sufficient to take away. And so notice also something that John is saying to his Jewish friends, if you will. That Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, did not come the first time to be a political liberator, freeing them from the yoke of Rome. He came to be a spiritual liberator to deliver people from our sin in total. 
and to separate us, if you will, from sin. So that sin, as Paul would say to the Romans, should no longer have dominance or dominion over us. We don't need to serve sin any longer because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has delivered us from sin. Sin shall have no mastery over us anymore, Paul says in Romans chapter 6. We only sin as believers in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, when we yield to it. But that's why Paul said, do not yield your members to sin. Yield them to God. Because greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And we as Christians, I I don't care what we've got or what's got a hold of us. There is nothing in this world more powerful than the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God has come to take away our sin and to take it upon himself and carry it away. And give us deliverance. And so John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, back to John 1. John says three things about Jesus. First, that he's the Lamb of God. Second here in verse 30, that he is the pre-existent, preeminent one. He says, this is the one about whom I said, after me comes a man who is greater than I am in front of, before me, because he existed before me, you see. And John was always saying, you know, he's he's greater. He's preeminent. He's the one that should take the lead. And we talked about that as well. We should let Jesus, the Lamb of God, lead us. The next thing he'll say here a little bit later on is that The third sort of identifying mark of Jesus from John the Baptist is not only the Lamb of God and he's the pre-existent, preeminent one, but he's the one that's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. So notice what John says, though, in verse 31. I did not recognize him. And and what he means is at first. When I first encountered Jesus... I did not see him as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God. That understanding, that recognition, that acknowledgement came later on. In fact, he says, I did not recognize him, but I came baptizing with water so that he could be revealed to Israel. And last week we talked all about the importance of John's baptism and how it was a preparation and how it was all about bringing change to the nation of Israel and the Gentiles as well. And to just get people to be open to the change that Jesus Christ would bring in their lives. It was a way for John again to prepare the way for the Lord. Someone didn't want to change. If they didn't think they needed to change, then obviously then Jesus Christ was not going to have a ministry in their lives. Because Jesus wants to bring about change in our life. Positive change, you see. And if we're not interested, if we like our misery, we like things the way they are, and we don't want to change, then, and so that's what John was doing. And it was through his baptism of Jesus, he's going to tell us, that that's when he really knew that Jesus 
was the Son of God, the Messiah. Sort of a little bit similar to what we talked about Sunday, where Peter, on the Mount of Transfiguration, has the experience of hearing the voice of God the Father say about Jesus, this is my beloved Son, you know, hear Him. That, that was a significant marker in Peter's life. This was obviously a significant step forward in John the Baptist's life. When he testified in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, and he remained on him. The, the, the thing that John wants to emphasize here in verse 32 is the permanence of the Holy Spirit with Jesus. The word remain means to abide, to continue, to be present continually. A permanence there. Jesus was never, you know, without the Spirit. And, and because Jesus laid aside, again, the independent use of His attributes while here on earth, everything that Jesus did was to be an example to all of us who would follow about what kind of life it would look like to be led by the Spirit. That's why, you know, in the Gospels it would say the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. And the Spirit would do this. Jesus allowed Himself to be led by the other person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Again, not because He needed to. He's God just as much as the Holy Spirit is. But He was laying down and giving us an example of what a life would look like that was totally abandoned to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And John saw that Holy Spirit come upon Jesus in a tangible way, and knew this was the one. And again, he says in verse 33, I did not recognize him at first, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. By the way, I want to go back up to this concept of John saying he was sent the one who sent me. God is in the business of sending people. And this word sent is a really interesting word. It means to be thrust or inserted in somewhere. And so we just need to sort of recognize that there's going to be times and seasons and places where God literally, the way I envision him, I know this is weird, just the way my mind thinks, but like I'm in this huge needle of God. And God just sort of squirts me here. He inserts me. There's, I want you there, Jeb. I, I want you with that person now. I, I want you in this situation now. He literally inserts us. You see. He thrusts us into this. And John is basically saying, that's exactly what God did with me. He thrust me into the wilderness and wanted me in my role and responsibility to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And to baptize with water. To lay the groundwork for the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, He imparts to us new life. And notice the contrast between John the Baptist's baptism and Jesus. John the Baptist's baptism was merely external. It was merely with water. It was preparation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus does is internal. It is spiritual. It is not 
just external. And He thrust the Holy Spirit into our lives. Every one of us that knows the Lord. And we then have the Holy Spirit with us throughout our lives. To teach us, to guide us, to lead us. And so John says in verse 34, I have both seen and testified that this man is the chosen one of God. Those words literally mean the fullest deity. In other words, John the Baptist could not have said any more of deity about God than he is using these words to describe Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's saying, the Lamb of God is as fully God as possible. And obviously, Scripture talks about this all the time. Paul said, He is the fullness of the Godhead. And in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so that's what John the Baptist says as well. So you see, John the Baptist is truly recognizing who Jesus is. And he wants to now share who Jesus really is with others around him. He wants them to see Jesus the way he has come to see and perceive and discern who Jesus is. So notice, verse 35. Any opportunity he can get to start pointing people to Jesus, that's what he does. He doesn't want people to follow him. He doesn't want to point people to him. He wants to point people to Jesus. And so it says again the next day, John was standing there with two of his disciples. And notice the Bible says he was gazing at Jesus. This means more than just looking. It, it means to, in a sense, look at with the mind, to, to consider. It's the same concept that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 12 too, when he encourages us as Christians to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. To look at with the mind, to consider, to go beyond the surface and to really give thought to who Jesus is. One of the greatest things you and I can do as Christians every day is to gaze at Jesus. To look at Jesus through the eyes of Scripture and through the eyes of God and to consider Him and to think about Him and to meditate on Jesus Christ. It's one of the greatest things we can do. It's one of the most beneficial things we can do. And it's exactly what John was doing. He was gazing at Jesus. Next time you're in a daze, somebody comes up and says, what are you doing? I'm gazing at Jesus. You might get some funny looks, but... And he says he was gazing at Jesus as he walked by. And he said again, look, the Lamb of God. And notice, when John's two disciples heard him, here again, the word hear is sort of like the word see. It doesn't just mean to hear with the physical ear here. It means to comprehend, to understand. It wasn't that they just heard John the Baptist say, Oh, look, the Lamb of God. They actually got it, if you will. The light bulb went on in their head. In other words, they knew, oh, this is the Messiah. This is God come in the flesh. And so the Bible says when John's two disciples heard him, they got it. Say this, they followed Jesus. Several things here. 
First of all, notice something really important here. John the Baptist wasn't upset that his disciples became Jesus' disciples. Because that was really the ultimate goal. It was never about getting followers for him. It was about pointing people to Jesus. But secondly, notice the importance, and this lays down a really important principle, of John the Baptist's disciples becoming first-hand followers of Jesus themselves and of building their own relationship with Jesus, not having a relationship with Jesus through someone else's relationship with Jesus. Now, my friends, listen, this is important because this happens all the time. It may have even happened to you in your lifetime. It may be happening right now to friends and family that you know in this way. The only way that they sort of know Jesus and relate to Jesus is through someone else. They haven't yet learned to sort of walk themselves with Jesus. To establish their own relationship with Him. They're living through someone else's relationship with Jesus. And that may be good for a time, a very short time, but there needs very quickly to come a point where people stop living through other Christians' relationships with Jesus and establish their own personal walk with God. Because we can only go so far through someone else. It's got to be ours. It's got to be ours. And we cannot continue to live through other people. We must establish our own relationship with God. Relationship. Where we walk with Jesus. Not where we're walking with Jesus through the walk of somebody else who's walking with Jesus. And notice something else. When the Bible says they followed Him, this means to join and accompany. It technically means to become a disciple. In other words, there's commitment there. It's not just like some people today who go, in fact, I I don't like to even use the word hate, but I used to really dislike very much this phrase that I would hear years ago, try Jesus. Oh my goodness, he's Jesus. You don't try him like you try something to eat. Man, if, 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 you know that, you know, you've, you've got to become to the place where they did that either he's the Lamb of God or he isn't. And if he's the Lamb of God, then you've got to be all in. There's got to be some commitment there. It can't be like, oh, I'm just going to dip my toe in a little bit. And again, that, there will never, we're going to see, that never brings about the life of God in anyone. There's got to be that break and there's got to be that commitment. And these disciples of John the Baptist followed. They didn't go, oh, well, John, uh, you know, how about if we do half and half? No, they followed Jesus. And then I love this. Here again is this interaction the Son of God Himself, beginning to interact with human beings. And what's one of the first things Jesus says to some of His first followers? 
Jesus turns around and says them following, What do you want? Really? And at first on the surface you go, Oh my golly! Jesus didn't read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, did He? Don't, don't you want people to follow you, Jesus? And so these young men turn around and, and they want to follow you and you turn around when they, you know that they're following you and you say, what do you want? But, again, Jesus isn't about having some half-hearted, half-committed followers. The reason He asks this very important and probing question is He really wants to know, why are you following Me? The language here speaks about what are you really after? What are you aiming at? What are you striving for in following me? And that's a question really every human being should at least wrestle with a little bit and ask themselves, why do I want to follow Jesus? Because there's all kinds of reasons why people want to follow. And, and what Jesus was in a sense doing at the very outset of his ministry is saying, if you think following me is somehow going to be easy... No, that ain't it. If you think following me is going to make you, you know, wealthy, no, I don't even have a place to lay my head. If you think following me there's not going to be any suffering, well, that's not true either, you see. And so right up front, Jesus is trying to decide, if you think I'm here so that I can overthrow the Roman government, and, and, and if you're going to follow me, then you're going to be high up in the, the kingdom here right now. No, that's not it either, because now I'm coming to die on a cross. So that's why Jesus says, what do you want? He wants to be, them to begin to probe in their own minds and, and ask in their own hearts, why do I really want to follow this man? Do I want to follow Him because I want to become like Him? Or are there other motivations and reasons why I want to follow Him? Is it because I want Him to do something for me? Am I primarily following Him because of what I can get out of it? Why do I want to follow Him? And that's why the question is so important. That's why we every once in a while, even as Christians, need to ask ourselves, why am I following why do I do the things I... Why am I minister in ministry? Why do I serve? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it for me or is it for Him? Is it for my glory or is it for Jesus' glory? Is it to become more like Him or... What are the reasons of following Jesus? So it was actually a very appropriate question. And notice their response. They said to Him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? Now, don't miss this. This is really cool. Again, they were just getting to know Jesus. And I'm sure that question probably did sort of take them back a little bit. But here's one of the things that, that they really, I think, wanted to know. Okay. If this is Jesus, if this is the Messiah, if this is God, is it possible to spend time with Him? Will He give me time as God? Is, is this a type of relationship that's possible with, with God that He would actually spend time 
with me? Because again, we, we come at it maybe from what we already know, but we've got to understand even today, but especially back then, any teaching about God, especially obviously all the false gods and stuff, people's concept of God was not one who was wanting to get near and build some kind of intimate relationship with creation. It was a God who was cold and distant and uncaring and unloving and all of that. So, you know, I can begin... And, and think about this even yourself. So put yourself, put myself back there. I'm beginning to... And, and I really believe that this is God in human flesh. God, would you spend time with me? I mean, that would be something that we would probably want to know. And notice what Jesus answers them. After they say, where are you staying? Jesus answered, come and you will see. And in a sense in that, that there's so much there, but Jesus is basically saying, yeah, I'll spend time with you. I'll hang out with you. Let's visit for a while. The Lamb of God. The one who created everything that we know. The one who sustains the universe. Is willing to spend time and hang out with us. And notice, these two of John the Baptist's disciples, we don't even know who these guys were. They don't even have names in the Bible. So it's not like, oh, they were really important people. No, they were just people just like us. There was nothing you know, special from a worldly perspective about John the Baptist's young disciples. Except the fact that Jesus loved them and he'd be glad to hang out with them for a while and stay with them. And I hope that will encourage your hearts. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that if you would say to Jesus, Jesus, can we hang out for a little bit? Will you stay with me and visit? Jesus is going to say the same thing to you he said to John the Baptist's disciples. Yeah, let's hang out for a while. I'd love to visit with you, Jeff. I'd love to spend some time with you. Let's hang out together. Now, I don't know about you. There's a lot of people in this world that wouldn't hang out with me. And the people that do, God bless them, you know, they've got a cross to bear. But the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, always desires to spend time with me brings a smile to my face. And it should to you as well. Whether you end this day with Jesus or whether you go home and get a good night's rest and you wake up tomorrow, know this, know this, and know it for the rest of your life. There's not a day that we live on earth that Jesus doesn't want to spend time with us. In fact, He wants to spend so much time with us that He sort of created eternity to spend time with us. Come and see. Notice this, though. Notice that first, I'll end with this. 
Notice they first had to come before they could see. Oh, folks, don't miss that. So many people today want to see before they come. And Jesus is saying, you've got to come. You and I have to hang out. We have to spend time together. And then you'll be able to see all kinds of stuff. See, again, Christians want to have insight and discernment and knowledge and wisdom and all of that, but they don't want to come. They don't want to come. And Jesus is saying, there are no shortcuts to being able to see. But it's not, profa- it's not hard to figure out either. It's just come. You come. You stay with me. Let's hang out together. And we will begin to see things we've never seen before. Because again, the word see means to perceive, to discern, to have a a deeper understanding, if you will. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Staying with Jesus, hanging out with him, (laughs) the creator of the universe. The wonder, the Word of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And yet, he hung out with two of John the Baptist's disciples. We don't even know where. We don't know what house it was. But he was just there. He was staying there. And he told them to come and stay with him. Spend the afternoon. Now again, we could look into this passage and go, Oh man, I envy those guys. I wish I would have been there to physically be able to spend time and visit with Jesus. But my friends, we can visit with Jesus just as real today. We can spend time with Jesus that is just as meaningful and just as real and just as deep as they did. See, we've got to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. And we've got to know that Jesus is with us and will be spending time with us and will be there with us. We might not be able to physically see Him with our eyes. But we will very much be able to sense His presence through the Holy Spirit inside of us. Anytime we get to stay with Jesus, that's good time. That's good time. I hope tonight that one thing that your mind will go back to, though, is that concept of the Lamb of God taking away our sin and remembering that whatever is not of faith is sin. Because Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And Jesus literally wants to take whatever weight, whatever heaviness is on your life right now, and He wants to literally take it off of you, bring it unto Himself, and carry it away and remove it from your life. So God, I pray tonight that each of us would experience Your peace 
A peace that you said, Lord, is not like the world gives. A peace that passes all understanding. The peace that the Bible talks about is a peace of stillness. A quietness, a tranquility of soul and spirit. And God, I pray tonight that your peace would invade our lives. And whatever is weighing us down, whatever is heavy tonight on us that is not a faith, God, that we would give that over to you. Let you lift it off of our lives and carry it away. Carry it away, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before you guys are dismissed tonight, could I make one really important announcement? So this Sunday is our potluck. Our first one since summer. 